Welcome to Reveal, the Revenue Intelligence Podcast powered by Gong. We're your hosts, Devin Reed. And I'm Sheena Badani. Revenue intelligence is a new way of operating based on customer reality instead of opinions, making data-driven decisions based on facts instead of opinions or guesswork. And it's made up of three success pillars, people intelligence, deal intelligence, and market intelligence. You know, the things all revenue teams need and care about. Every week, we interview senior revenue professionals and share their stories and insights on how they leverage revenue intelligence to drive success and win their market. You'll hear how modern go-to-market teams win as a team, close revenue with critical deal insight, and execute their strategic initiatives, plus all the challenges that come along with it. Sheena, I was out for a few weeks for Pat leave, and... I want to say I'm very proud of you, not just for running the show while I was gone, but more interestingly, that we got into a little bit of trouble on the Reveal podcast. Well, thank you. Saying that you're you're proud of me makes me feel really special. <laughs> <laughs> I miss you a lot. <laughs> um, we did. We got into a little bit of trouble, but it, in some ways it was kind of flattering because we ha- basically had another podcast. There's another podcast named Reveal, by the way. So if you su- ever searched for our, our podcast and came across that one, that was not us, that is more famous and, and much bigger than ours. <laughs> they approached us that, hey, guys, you're using the same name for the same podcast. Folks are getting confused. Um, so, you know, in some ways it was like, oh, no, well, we had to do some things to course, take care of that. Course. Um, but also that somebody is looking at us. So in some ways when you get in trouble, it's a, it can be a good sign too. Yeah. Yeah. I'm always, uh, like I said, you know, it's, it's not significant trouble. Um, but you know, I I thought the same thing. So one humbly, the other reveal podcast is larger. They're also, I think like a journalistic approach. Like, you know, it's, it's not B2B like we are. Um, so I was, I was wondering, you know, how did they come across us? Was it like a dashboard and there's reveal and then there's this other where the other reveal, you know, and they're like, wait, why, why are our numbers off? And uh, or, you know, maybe it was just a listener saying, hey, I'm having a hard time finding you guys. I just get this purple, this purple logo instead with, with this guy, Devin and this gal, Sheena. So I have no idea, but I'm very proud of you because I think, you know, uh, for, for those who don't know, there's a very famous story of being uh, getting a uh, cease and, and desist, uh, which was Michael Jordan. When he first had his uh, Nike Air Jordans come out, they were black and red. He was not supposed to wear that. The NBA said, hey, you cannot wear those. So what did Nike do? The next day, they had a huge ad saying the only shoes banned by the NBA. And uh, nice. sales went through the roof. So we don't sell anything here on the Reveal podcast, but you know, maybe, maybe it'll be a little bit of positive uh, publicity there. And, and you might notice a new logo. A refined logo yes. in the coming weeks. So let us know what you think about it. <laughs> let us know what you think. That's us uh, coming to a middle ground. I guess we somewhat did split the difference. Don't tell Chris Voss. Um, well, for this week, I- I'm curious for you, Sheena, when you think of the phrase relationship selling, what comes to mind or what does it mean to you? I think of really big in-person meetings I'm thinking like half day, like day long type of workshop, big meetings with a lot of important Mm. people. I think of taking a customer out to a nice dinner, uh, you know, getting that fancy salmon plate, (laughs) uh, 
chatting over dinner, like that's kind of what comes to my head. I think of, of course, traveling long, you know, being in the airport, long trips uh, to meet a customer. Those are the things that come to my head. What about you? I think those are all accurate. I, I thought the same for me and my selling experience was my first thought when I hear that is, well, that's kind of just selling to me. Like, aren't you always building a relationship? But I've always been in software sales where and it hasn't been highly transactional. So then my thought is what you're describing is probably one side of the spectrum, very, you know, uh, heavy on the relationship side. But then there are other sellers that sell things that are more transactional or, you know, not in the B2B space. So my gut was like, aren't you always supposed to be building relationships? Um, but I asked because this week we uh, hung out with a, a couple of uh, revenue leaders. And what we're going to talk about is relationship selling and why it's so important to their growth and the way that they disrupt the industries that they serve. Let's get into the interview. All right. So we have Ali Azar and Matt Lewis, VP of sales and VP of growth, respectively, at Hover. Thanks for joining us, guys. How has your Cyber Monday been so far? Uh, it's great to come back into the work week from uh, the, the long holiday weekend. Uh, Thanksgiving's really wonderful uh, holiday to experience. I think, Matt, you say this all the time, that uh, it's one where there's not any ghouls or goblins or any other reason to celebrate other than just giving thanks. And I, I love that about the holiday. Yeah, I think, uh, like I always said, I think it's an amazing time to, to share thanks with everyone. And uh, it's my favorite holiday. Absolutely. And I bring up Cyber Monday because, as listeners know, we have for the first time two interviewees for the price of one. And uh, what a fantastic time to give thanks because uh, you guys are also celebrating a $60 million Series D. So congrats on that as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's super exciting on the recent funding. Can you tell us a little bit about Hover and what makes the company particularly unique? Just a little bit of background on, on the company itself. Um, Hover is a mobile application technology that um, allows a user to capture uh, with six to eight photos the exterior of uh, most any property. And, excuse me, and from those uh, six to eight exterior photos, we're able to create a virtual three-dimensional twin representation of that property. Uh, we're able to recognize the materials that's on that property, and we're able to provide measurement data for all of the exterior line types of the property within a 1% to 3% margin of error just from the photos. We're the kind of first ever of its kind ground-level capture technology that is able to just take happy snaps from a cell phone and provide the type of output that we provide. But besides the practical application of the tech, uh, some of the things that uh, make our company incredibly unique – First and foremost, it starts with our founder and CEO. He's an incredibly humble individual, but uh, balances that humility with an incredible amount of um, confidence and, um, uh, and and what it is that we're doing at Hover. But uh, he's a, a legitimate Indiana farm boy, uh, grew up in a 500-person town, and became a computer engineer at Intel, and then decided one day that he wanted to quit that job and that career to ultimately end up volunteering as a, a infantry marine soldier and, and, and fighting in the war in Iraq. The company was actually born out of those experiences when AJ got the epiphany that instead of drones and satellite imagery that flew over war zones, that uh, the sensors and the cell phones had advanced to a point where he could convert the solution to a ground-level solution as a mobile application solution. And, and we pivoted the business in 2015 and kind of launched into the market. And who do you primarily sell to today? Well, we initially got product market fit and go-to-market fit with uh, the home improvement industry. They were our initial customer base, and we were able to have been able to to perform very well um, selling into that segment. You know, I think fundamentally there's a massive 
kind of problem in the home improvement uh, market right now. If you've ever experienced buying a project for your home, a lot of times there's just this giant lack of transparency in the process. I think with Hover, you get this opportunity where we capture eight photos and we build a structured data set that allows collaboration between a contractor, an insurance professional, and the homeowner uh, to visualize possibilities in their home. What is this going to look like? What is this going to cost and why? We're partnered with all the major distributors and manufacturers uh, in, in exterior home improvement. Uh, and we actually have their sort of product catalogs built into our visualization experience all the way down to real-time pricing. So for a contractor, we kind of help them, you know, go from using tape measure every day uh, to bringing in sample boards to show the homeowner what it's going to look like and then doing napkin math to get to a quote to a sort of a seamless software-as-a-service platform that goes from the moment of discovering these different looks and feels of the home to the actual cost of the project and then down to the actual ordering experience. So we feel like we're kind of bringing transparency and disruption to a very antiquated uh, market that, frankly, needs to be needs to be changed. One of the things I would add to that is that this point solution that we brought to the market, where we initially were providing um, three dimensional reconstruction of properties with with accurate measurement output for all of the exterior line types of the property is really just a bit of a beachhead for like the ultimate vision of the business to organize the world's physical structure. And one of the things that, that I think makes us so unique is that there's these phases of uh, maturity that we're moving into where we start off as a point solution servicing different markets and prop tech. And we've now uh, evolved into kind of like the second phase of maturity of the business, which is facilitating commerce and the verticals that we serve, starting with the home improvement industry. So we'd have an end to end solution. And so that's a, uh, a really big milestone for us as a company as we move from that point solution to more of a platform solution for these verticals that we service. And then eventually we are going to get to a point where we've aggregated enough uh, user collected data on the, the structured data on properties that will effectively be able to create a 3d map. And then once you get to the point where you have a 3d map, where you know, the measurement data at an one to 3% margin of error, uh, drone delivery of packages, self-driving automation, augmented reality use cases, um, there, there, there's a ton of, uh, uh, a ton of use cases that get liberated from that, um, experience we have as we mature from, uh, measurements to commerce, to, to the map. It's pretty fascinating how some of the stuff that you're talking about in your vision is really futuristic. It's like when you think of AI, it's all those things that you just mentioned, but at the same time, you've gone to market in a really tangible way and providing impact to construction and, and home improvement industries in a really real and immediate way. So that, that's, that's really, really interesting. Thank you. Uh, so Ali, you spent the first 15 years of your career as an entrepreneur and the last 10 in software sales. How did you make the switch? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, I lived a pretty typical immigrant experience when my family came over from Afghanistan in, in the late 1970s. And the definition for the pursuit of happiness was, get a great education, get a great job, make a lot of money, have kids, and uh, and you'd be happy. And I was <clears throat> marching my way down that path uh, in my 20s. I, I started my my first uh, company when I was 19 years old, and I sold it at 23 to a public company in Boston. And I continued down that path. I started another technology company, and I sold it. And then my third company was a home improvement and real estate development company, and I was fortunate to be able to successfully sell that. And then my fourth business was a spectacular failure was like fireworks going off the top of the building when the thing burnt down. And um, 
The thing that was really interesting about it, it was an incredibly painful experience for me to go through like on an emotional level. Um, I didn't realize what was happening at the time, but I, I do now in hindsight was that I had tied so much of my identity. I think like a lot of people do in my professional success. And when I was successful professionally, it was, it was very easy for me to kind of get the sense of happiness and, and fulfillment from that success. But as soon as it went away, it was a very debilitating experience for me to go through. And it caused me for the first time ever to ask myself the question, what I actually would do that made me happy as opposed to optimizing on what I would do that made me the most money. And so when I thought about that for the first time ever, I, I really, I had enjoyed my technology companies and I'd always enjoyed selling. And as I thought about uh, having to build my career over, cause I I'd lost uh, my life savings at that point and was, was in a, a bunch of debt um, at the time. So I really, you know, I had to figure something else out. Software sales was um, my, my primary design principle of being happy um, drove me to software sales, excuse me. And, and so the next thing I thought about after what would, what would make me happy is where would I go that um, the smartest people in the world work for the thing that makes me happy. And so once I knew I wanted to go into software sales, then it was a no brainer for me to, um, to move to the Bay area from Florida, which is where I had spent 30 years um, prior to moving uh, to California. And so um, that was really the process that I went through that, that drove me getting into software sales and, and kind of starting my career over um, almost 10 years ago. My first reaction to that story is that's a fantastic story and thank you for sharing. But I know that it's a fantastic story, Ali, because you've you've bounced back and you're resilient and you know now you've made a successful career, right? I, I'm aware that uh, in the moments of uh, of despair, as you described, probably weren't always sure that it was going to pan out. But I have to imagine a lot of people listening, myself included can relate to what you said about, you know, when I'm successful at work, I feel successful in life. And that's kind of my identity. Uh, and it can be really challenging, especially in sales that can be an up and down, um, you know, roller coaster of emotions when you're, you know, top of the leaderboard, then maybe you have a bad quarter. Uh, it's something that's really challenging. And, uh, you know, I really just want to kind of uh, applaud you for your ability to bounce back in a major way. Thank you so much for saying that. I, um, I know that uh, some of us are fortunate to have those kinds of shell cracking experiences and and some of us are fortunate to be able to bounce back and uh but the reality is that there's a lot of people that don't necessarily have the those opportunities and that type of faculty but uh for whatever reason i was able to to be one of the lucky ones and um a, a big part of what you know i focus on and, and matt uh we also focus on as leaders in the businesses how can we help equip other people with the types of um skills that you can actually acquire that can give right. you those capabilities if you are finding yourself in those types of experiences. Absolutely. Well, I know that you're the VP of sales and Matt, you're the VP of growth. And that looks to be in charge of marketing, sales ops, strategy, customer success, and, and maybe a few more missing. Quick sidebar. I understand that you're a fan of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Are you also a practitioner of jiu-jitsu? I am. Okay, I'm going to be a lot nicer to you moving forward uh, in this interview. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'm curious if there's any similarities between, you know, the practice of mastering jujitsu and the practice of building a successful startup. Because I see you also spent some time at Pinterest, which uh, is a successful startup. You know, I think jujitsu is known as the, the gentle art, but. Ali is always giving me trouble uh, for my black eyes at work. So I don't know how gentle it really is, but it's essentially submission grappling. So think wrestling with, with choke holds and 
joint locks and submissions like you'd see in UFC. And when you go out for the first time in jujitsu and you hit the mats, you'll notice that there's kind of just this wide variety of people, body types, genders. And it's common to see situations where a 300 pound bodybuilder is being submitted by a 130 pound woman. And you quickly realize that this is a really cerebral sport and you're entering this world where there's a craft that is being mastered. And at that moment you kind of realize, wow, I have a lot to learn and whatever you thought about yourself before and your ability to sort of defend yourself is just sort of all of a sudden thrown out the window. And it's that moment that you start to become humble because you realize how much knowledge can play into combat sport like this. In my mind, when you have humility, what you're actually doing is you're opening yourself to feedback, to be receptive to feedback. I'm actually not the best. I think humility by definition is lack of ego. And you can probably think of a lot of times in your life where you got overconfident, right? Hubris, pride cometh before the fall. And when you become humble, that ego is removed. And now you're open to new ideas, new things. And jujitsu is like a lot of crafts that you master. You're likely never going to be the best. There's always going to be somebody in the world better than you. Sure. But you just continually dedicate yourself to that craft by staying humble and open to new ideas, new feedback. And I think that is such a parallel to startup life. We talk a lot about the importance of humility at Hover um, and, and the fact that in a startup, especially with COVID going on, you have all of this pressure of change and pressure to adapt. And if you're not remaining humble, open to feedback, open to new ideas, you stop growing. And the second you stop growing, you're going to fail. Uh, and I'm sure a lot of people have thought about this in startups. This will probably resonate with you. This, you know, you kind of get this point where you're like, oh, once we just get here, we're going to be great. And you get there and you start kind of thinking, okay, we've got it figured out. And then the next day, the environment changes again. The landscape around you changes again. And if you remain kind of beholden to your ego, um, you're not going to adapt. You're going to fail. So jujitsu is kind of, for me, a, a, this reminder every day I go into the mats that there's always growth. There's always the ability to learn and that you need to remain humble. That's such an important perspective and uh, skill to demonstrate, especially at the leadership level. So I, I'm sure your team appreciates that humbleness that you drive for your team and that you demonstrate yourself. So let's dive in yeah. a little bit more into how you sell at Hover. Um, you know, you're selling, as we talked about earlier, into really entrenched um, old markets, right? Property insurance, exterior home improvement. They're not typical SaaS markets, you know, IT, for example. And I, I believe at Hover, you're really using relationship-based sales to disrupt these markets. How does that model and way of selling differ from what those markets are used to? Yeah, it's a great question, Sheena. I, I think that um, the interesting thing about our approach is that that model and way of selling is exactly how they sell within the industries. You can have a strong relationship with someone in the industry and not have necessarily the best product, but be able to make the sale versus the opposite situation. And what I think a lot of um, Silicon Valley and, and tech tech startups in general uh, fall victim to is, uh, you know, a product centric approach. And, you know, by the nature of the startups company, they're, they're 
technologists, we're technologists, and we take a more technology-centric approach to selling. And within these uh, customer segments that we're selling to, these people, as you alluded to, they're not natural adopters of technology. It's not like when we were working together at Mongo and uh, we were selling to developers and, uh, and engineers who were you know, naturally curious adopters of like the next best thing as it pertains to technology. So one of the things that made, I think made me an attractive candidate for, for AJ to want to talk to you is because I had the experience owning a home improvement and real estate development company and then um, working in actually an open source uh, at Mongo were both things that uh, were intriguing to AJ because he felt like he did understand that the customer we needed to have a strong relationship with, we needed to have a lot of respect for, we needed to kind of uh, meet them where they were as opposed to judging them in some type of negative way to come to where, where we were just simply because we had a very unique and differentiated and high value uh, technology that we were bringing to, to the market and, and things that people w- were and still are very excited about. And so all that we did at Hover was walk in the door and match our approach to the way that they actually go to market within their own industry um, so that they felt like we genuinely understood them and we're generally listening to them, not just speaking at them. So that, that, that was a, a really important initial philosophy that we maintained as we started to look at our sales strategy and our GTM uh, in general uh, from early in the business until today. So when I think about relationship sales, like I imagine uh, reps and customers and prospects whining and dining, they're meeting in person, they're, you know, you're for, in your world, maybe like meeting at these con- large construction sites and that's completely disrupted and is not happening today. How have you been able to maintain those customer relationships with remote selling? The common misconception is that uh, I think relationship-based selling is this uh, idea of like golf courses and enterprise reps and uh, buying beers and uh, and taking people to dinners. Uh, but the, the truth of the matter is, at least in terms of how we define relationship-based selling at Hover, uh, is that it? It's about um, authenticity. Uh, it's about openness. Uh, it's about um, direct communication. And so, one of the things that we focus on uh, intently is the development of genuine relationships with our customers, such that they transcend um, that surface level experience of simply taking people out to dinner, uh, but more so not even just uh, knowing to ask people what kinds of problems they're trying to solve, but more importantly, genuinely being interested in helping them to solve those problems. Even if it means walking away from the business and letting a potential prospect know that we're not the right solution for them to be working with. And um, it's very easy to say that you want to be a trusted business advisor. It's very easy to say that you want to be focused on problem centric selling or challenger selling or any of the types of uh, sales methodologies that require you to, uh, to have a strong relationship, but it's much more difficult to uh, invest in yourself enough that you feel strong enough about your own sense of self-worth and your own authenticity as a person that you can create that type of dynamic with someone. And when you are able to do that successfully, it moves far beyond the necessity to be in the room with somebody and transcends to a phone call or a Zoom meeting or an email. Um, because people can 
Uh, you can't fake authenticity uh, by its nature and the impact that it has when it's felt by a, a customer because it's a almost an extraordinary experience since most customers don't expect the vendor to be able to uh, generate that type of uh, dynamic between themselves and, and the customer. Ali and Matt believe that relationship selling, focusing on building rapport and trust rather than just pushing features or price, is key to how they've been able to disrupt the deeply entrenched industries that Hover serves. But in today's world of automated selling tools and remote meetings, why do relationships still matter? After all, when buyers can go online to find most of the information they need to make a decision, does the buyer-seller relationship really make much of a difference? I bet most salespeople would agree that it does. And the data backs that up. According to CEB, 53% of C-level execs buy because of the experience they have with the salesperson. And LinkedIn's 2017 State of Sales survey found that the number one contributing factor in making a purchase decision is if the buyer has trust in the salesperson. And the 2020 report shows the same thing. The number one thing that buyers care about is trust. So not much has changed there in the last couple of years. Being relationship focused can also help you outlast the competition on a deal. In a 2017 Sales Hacker article, Emmanuel Scala, SVP of Customer Success at Toast, shared the results of her survey of 50 tech sales leaders. Over 55% of respondents said their teams only maintain relationships with prospects that are going to immediately close. That means there are plenty of opportunities to pick up the slack, build those relationships for the long term, and win more deals against your competitors. Stay tuned for the micro action at the end of the episode for tips to help you build stronger buyer relationships. Ali, as you guys are hiring for the sales team, do you look specifically for talent that have this background? Or is it something maybe that you guys teach in-house and it's like, hey, come one, come all, whether you have the relationship selling background or a transactional background? We definitely index towards people that have, um, we call them signals that we look for in the sourcing and interview process where um, our goal and objective is to create a, an authentic dialogue with the candidates that we're meeting to get an understanding of what their motivation and inspiration and, 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 and purposes for their own life. How are they driven to interact with the world around them? And do they embody traits like humility and curiosity and empathy and grit and authenticity and is our purpose and passion important concepts to them in their own life? Does that net out in places um, either as a requirement for where they work or in the way that they manage uh, their hobbies the dynamics between themselves and their family and trying to achieve work-life harmony. We're absolutely looking for folks that are already um, have that type of inclination or proclivity at a maximum and at a minimum are intrigued and believe that this is a really great way to operate because we don't necessarily need to have everyone that's like super woke on this, but we at least need people to be at a place where it's something that is very attractive to them as a way to move forward in life. Totally makes sense. And then the, the last part you said touches on what Matt was saying earlier, right? Having that, uh, that growth mindset and always being willing to learn if they don't have it already. Exactly. So of course there are these signals that you can identify before you bring on a new rep onto your team. But I imagine there's some aspects that you can continuously train on, that you can continuously focus on that self-development aspect. And it, and it may not even necessarily be like hard selling skills, but some of that personal development to help build those relationships are there any programs 
courses, initiatives, anything that you've done at Hover that kind of help on that self inner reflection or that those that skill development? In my tenure at the company, I was always very uh, careful to not um, be too kind of demonstrative and assertive in this direction. One of the things that I found was that um, this this type of uh, investment in people's uh, you know. Um, uh, emotional faculty and, and, and emotional uh, coping skills is there's a very delicate balance about how to introduce it. And I, I kind of just worked really hard to live it myself very authentically. And as the years went by, more and more reps that saw the my ability to navigate uh, just the day-to-day stresses of being in a, in a hyper-growth startup was attractive to them. And, and there were a few people that we worked with. It was just very ad hoc and kind of an organic thing. But then COVID happened and uh, was such a radical um, change in circumstance for us as a company. And the prevailing uh, mindset for the majority of people in the org as a function of us having a really strong and uh, dynamic culture was like, okay, there's all this change that's happening. We just need to go do like, we need to go, we need to take action and, and we need to solve these problems. And a really beautiful thing that actually Matt Lewis did in, in the midst of us living what actually one of our values in the company, our due value, which is to have a bias to action is he pulled me aside and said, you know what? I, I think that um, Ali, we're not living our think value enough, which our think value is effectively just making sure that you always challenge the status quo. Like don't have any sacred cows in the business that can't be changed or, or improved on over time. And, uh, that was a really clarifying moment for me because when he said that to me, I was like in the midst of like being in the middle of a war zone and bombs going off everywhere. And he had this moment of clarity where he was able to just articulate that there, there's a way that we can empower the people on our teams to be superheroes themselves instead of us being the superheroes trying to save other people. And it was in that moment that we became much more assertive about this idea of investing in the team in ways that help them to better manage stress, to be better at authentic communication, to have the right type of perspective when it came to things that they might have previously perceived as like good versus bad and and moving into a place where they just see things as this uh, different opportunities to learn. And so we started to invest in uh, mindfulness training for the team. Uh, It's totally voluntary. We don't uh, make it a part of performance reviews. It's uh, something though that, uh, as time has gone on, more and more people in the company have been um, starting to participate in, and it's provided a really incredible unlock for us in terms of being able to continue to invest skills within the people on our teams that are the types of skills that are transferable, whether you're at Hover or beyond. Yeah, I just love like some of those areas that you mentioned that you have uh, focused on with your team are applicable at work and even in personal lives, right? Like authentic communication, mindfulness. These are things, especially these days when like your personal and professional are so interwoven, you can't separate what you're doing at work versus what you're doing at home. We uh, used to have a explicit no assholes policy, and that's kind of evolved now into a explicit no ego policy because that's kind of a bit of the underpinning to any of the no fill in the blank policy that you want to have no jerk policy, no rude policy. And so uh, a big part of uh, removing ego is um, helping people establish uh, skills that are an investment towards their sense of self-worth. And if people have a high sense of self-worth, that's really the underpinning to discipline. Uh, Cause I could tell any person on any of the teams, Matt could do the same thing. Hey, you need to make more phone calls. Hey, you need to invest more time in things that are strategic. 
But telling someone that who doesn't necessarily have the ability to be disciplined as a function of feeling really great about themselves and their skills and their ability to ask for help when they need it or to communicate if something has gone wrong um, that might be coming from an executive in the business, uh, in the absence of that type of confidence, uh, the entire system breaks down. And one of the really beautiful parts of this evolution for myself, and I think I can speak for Matt also uh, in terms of our maturity in the business is, you know, we're no longer problem identifiers or problem solvers. You know, we're worked really hard to become system builders. And we know that we have to create a healthy human system um, for us to be able to function effectively, especially in today's day and age. And even if COVID hadn't happened, it needed, it needs to be the case as a startup scales. So it's been a really um, wonderful part of the process. And I could add on a, a couple of thoughts there. Uh, Sheena, you mentioned sort of the idea that the sort of work-life balance right now with, with COVID is starting to put a lot of, a lot of pressure on, on organizations. And I think you can see across all of the country right now, scores for people's ability to like manage stress on their company surveys or handle the, the workload right now are at all time sort of, sort of lows. And I think it's a little naive as a leader to think, Hey, everything around us has just radically shifted exponential change. And we can just keep doing everything the way we were doing it before. We can have meetings the same way. We can train and develop people the same way. We can grow leaders the same way. It's just not the case. And I think what we're trying to do as much as possible is make sense of this and adapt to it. Uh, we do check-ins before meetings where we talk about how people are showing up. We're trying to put an emphasis on the ability to sort of manage the external and sort of internal stress that people are experiencing in this new environment uh, and not sort of shy away from it. In, in fact, even just talking about it and having discussions about it and putting it as an opportunity that we can solve for in the organization, I think is a big step in the right direction. And, and we haven't figured it out yet. I, I don't know if anyone really has. The key is you have to understand that it's a real thing and you have to attempt to address it in some way. A healthy human system is someone that's showing up to work every day who feels a sense of purpose and fulfillment and also is able to manage the external factors and stress that are going on in their life at the given moment, which has changed quite a bit in the past year. Yeah, that open dialogue is so important. We're feeling comfortable enough to be, as you mentioned before, your authentic self and voice that you even have stress in your life is critical because I think a lot of people feel like they can't express that, especially at work. It shows that you're vulnerable, that you can't handle everything that's being thrown at you. So if your manager asks you, how's it going? The natural thing is to say, I'm fine, right? Oh, I can handle it. I'm doing it all. And that's usually not the case for everyone, especially today. But having an environment where you can't express that and not be looked down upon or not feel like you're not going to get that next, you know, big account because they think that you're not strong enough to, t to handle it is, is a challenge these days. And, and the beauty of that is you're creating the environment that's ripe for distributed leadership. Because in essence, what you're doing by being vulnerable and allowing people to feel comfortable to talk to you about the challenges they're facing in their life or, or at work is you're creating psychological safety. And essentially what that boils down to is do people feel comfortable to take risks? Do people feel comfortable to take and make their own decisions and then take action on those decisions? 
And I think when really stressful situations happen, I learned this in the military, there's this sort of desire to be a superhero. I'm going to pick up the flag and charge the hill. And in fact, it should be the opposite. As a leader, your job is to create sort of collective, collective consciousness, shared purpose, and, you know, consensus with your team by just, you know, pushing that leadership decision-making down to the individual. And they won't take to that unless there is a, a, a place of trust and psychological safety that first came from vulnerability. So it, it has this sort of virtuous flywheel effect where when you create that vulnerability and then gain the trust, you're actually empowering your people to make decentralized decisions. I love that approach, Matt. Do you have any examples of maybe when you've had a, I don't know, like a successful, maybe it could just be a conversation with one individual, maybe a team meeting, or maybe like a specific initiative that you've put together that really helped to kind of convey these values to your team? Yeah. So where I've seen this play out, I mean, I think you have to look further than how our company and how myself and, and other leaders responded to sort of the onset of COVID-19. Uh, and in our industry, there were a lot of people that were afraid to engage with uh, contractors to do home improvement projects. So the market was kind of in a really desperate space and we didn't really know what was going to happen. Um, we were supposed to be in our kind of growth supposed to be doubling at that point, And we were kind of going the opposite direction and Ali and myself and other leaders were sort of in these like war room scenarios. What are we going to do? How are we going to future plan for things? And how are we going to address this, this sort of changing evolving environment? And that's when we kind of realized that at this point, you know, the company was at a stage now where we weren't going to be able to save it. We, we couldn't do everything. It was impossible. We weren't going to be able to carry the whole thing on our back up this hill. But that was the initial inclination. And I think we got together with our leadership team below us and we kind of laid out what we understood to be the situation. And this wasn't just limited to, hey, look, our numbers are going down. It was like, this is our financial runway. These are the things that we need to get done in order to be successful. But we don't exactly know how to get there. But we're going to give you all of the information so that you have a shared sort of consciousness that we have, seeing all the context around the problem or the opportunity and then we need you to start thinking about ways to solve for that. And you know what? It might not be perfect. That's where you come in with the vulnerability and the trust, right? And the psychological safety it might not be perfect right away, but we're going to work through this together. And from that, we completely overhauled our go to market approach, our marketing, our messaging. It all of a sudden went to listen, homeowners don't want to meet with you because they're scared of COVID, but you can do everything in a digital digitally remote way with hover. We are the transformation, right? Extreme situations cause people to change faster than they wanted to originally. And we seized that moment and we kind of went from this place where we were like, what are we going to do? This is really, really bad to, wow, we're going to hit plan this year. And that's, that's the industry that we're in is, is still flat to down year over year, but we've taken an unfair share of the pie. And just as an extension to what Matt said, that uh, approach that we took internally in terms of pushing um, decision-making down as far into the business as we could, that was able to extend outside the walls of our office. We were able to partner with the superheroes that were our customers and the people who weren't superheroes and the folks that were also afraid and scared that they were going to lose uh, their businesses. You know, we, we work with companies that are as small as doing $500,000 a year in revenue to companies that do $300 billion a year in revenue. And, uh, 
it was a very daunting time for a lot of people. And the really amazing thing is that that growth mindset, that leadership mindset, uh, it was empowering more so than just the impact on our own internal business. Like we were able to, because of the genuine relationships that we had with our customers, truly find out the things that were keeping them up at night and what we needed to shift so that when we did radically change our go-to-market strategy, it was in a direction that was to the benefit of our customers' needs. And, um, and we were able to do that incredibly quickly because of the relationships that we had with them. I love that story. And it, it sounds like by sharing your uncertainty as senior leaders and inviting them to be part of the solution, they didn't just buy into the challenge, but they really took ownership in that strategy and that path forward. And the outcome was, dare I say, more successful than maybe if you guys had attempted on your own. Totally agree. Matt and Ali, we have one final question that we ask all of our guests. And uh, either one of you can volunteer to go first, but the other person will still has to have to answer the question. Uh, you'll just get a little bit more time to think about it. So how would you describe sales in one word? If I, if I had to bring it down to one word, I would say um, advocacy. Just to build upon a lot of what we talked about today, when you create that authentic relationship between yourself and someone that you, your intention is to be in service of, um, the most important aspect of uh, being successful in that relationship is to be an advocate for that person and helping to resolve the needs that they have. That advocacy felt like a great place to land. Matt, how about you? Uh, not not as fun as all these probably, but I would say adventure. I don't know. There's just something about sales which can be so exhilarating and also so demoralizing at the same time. Uh, and I feel like when people go on adventures in life, you know, you're kind of embarking into this unknown thing. Like you never know the way the client meeting is really going to go. Uh, you just hope you're hoping that you've put yourself in a place to be successful. And I feel like that's kind of what, what, what an adventure is. And that's kind of what, what sales is. And sometimes it doesn't always go right but you keep coming back for more because you love the thrill of the adventure. And I feel like sales, you have that certain type of DNA where like you're always seeking the adventure and you know that there's a chance you're going to fail and it might not even be your fault, but you're going to keep coming back for more because you love it. Damn, that was good. <laughs> well, Ali and Matt, this was a wonderful conversation. Thanks so much for breaking down how you think about leadership um, how you are evolving your business to meet the changes in the market today. And it was a pleasure getting to know both of you a little bit better. Thank you so much. I really appreciate uh, uh, having the chance to be here. Yeah, it was an honor. Thank you. And nice meeting you. For this week's micro action, let's break down relationship selling a bit. Relationship selling isn't just about golf outings and fancy dinners, though those are nice. It's about connection. Here are some ways you can immediately start strengthening your connection with your buyers. First, be real. That means living with authenticity and openness. Be mindful. Loosening the binds on your own ego helps you focus more on others. Be valuable. Earn trust by giving first, sharing useful insights, and solving problems. Be present. Listen closely and learn what really matters to each individual buyer. Be a good fit. Your product or service may not be the right solution for everyone. And last, but possibly most important, be patient. You can't force trust. Building solid relationships takes time. 
Did you like today's episode? Subscribe now so next week's episode will be waiting for you on Monday. And if you really like the podcast, please leave a review. Five-star reviews go a long way to help get the word out there. And if you're not ready to give a five, check out another episode and see if we've won you over by then. And if you have any feedback or you want us to interview one of your favorite revenue leaders, just email us at reveal at gong.io.